You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Monday, February 20th. I'm Patty Caldera from Drake University. Here's our first story. Primrose Retirement Community Practices Random Acts of Kindness Employees at Primrose Retirement Community showed their appreciation to Council Bluffs firefighters on Friday in observance of Random Acts of Kindness Day. Members of the facility's management team delivered several large tubes of goodies to fire station number six, with some to be passed along to department headquarters. The treats included candy, snacks, drinks, and a $10 Amazon gift card for each crew member. Crews from station number six responded whenever an ambulance is needed at Primrose, as well as several other senior living facilities on Gainesville Boulevard and North Broadway, said Tiffany Eggett, executive director at Primrose. They're in our building a lot, and they're always kind to our residents, she said. It's the seventh year Primrose has done favors for people on Random Acts of Kindness Day, Eggett says. We've done small businesses, we did healthcare workers during the pandemic, and last year we did teachers at Lewis and Clark Elementary School, she said. Another year, a couple staff members and a handful of residents went to Iowa Western Community College and handed out cookies and gift cards to students working in the college's cyber library on Random Acts of Kindness Day. The day's title came from the Random Acts of Kindness Foundation, whose goal is to make kindness the norm. The foundation urges people to become Random Acts of Kindness activists or RIK activists. Being kind is good for the giver as well as the recipient, according to the foundation, citing research from Emory University, the foundation's website states. When you are kind to another person, your brain's pleasure and reward. Another year, a couple of staff members and a handful of residents went to Iowa Western Community College and handed out cookies and gift cards to students working in the college's cyber library on Random Acts of Kindness Day. The day's title came from the Random Acts of Kindness Foundation, whose goal is to make kindness the norm. The foundation urges people to become Random Acts of Kindness activists or RIKtivist. Ractivist. The foundation urges people to become Random Acts of Kindness activist or Ractivist. Being kind is good for the giver as well as the recipient, according to the foundation. Citing research from Emory University, the foundation's website states, when you are kind to another person, your brain's pleasure and reward center lights up, as if you were the recipient of the good deed, not the giver. The phenomenon is called the helper's high. Kindness stimulates the production of serotonin, the chemical freed by widely used antidepressants, the website states, this feel-good chemical heals your wounds, calms you down, and makes you happy. Psychologist Talia Steinberg wrote for Psychology Today. Acts of kindness, the foundation recommends include the following. Acts of kindness, the foundation recommends include the following. Let a senior go ahead of you in line. Be a friend to a lonely neighbor. Visit the nearest little free library and leave a book. Donate used books to a public library. Be kind to your server. 
leave a generous tip, send an encouraging email, put away your phone and listen with your heart. Donate blood, sign up to be an organ donor, go to a nursing home, find out who doesn't get visitors or gifts and adopt them as a grandparent. Have center exhibit to explore county history from mammoths to Mormons. Watami Arts, Culture and Entertainment is presenting a century-spanning glimpse into the history of Potawatomi Pata County with a new exhibit entitled Your Home, A History of Potawatomi County. Scheduled to open on Friday, March 3rd at the Hoff Family Arts and Cultural Center. Your home will feature artifacts and other pieces of interest from an from as far back as the last ice age to the westward expansion through the early 2000 century. A subcaption for the exhibit could be from mammoths to Mormons, said Adam Van Ostel, Pace's creative director. We kind of say that in jest, but that's sort of the timeline of the exhibit. In addition to a giant woolly mop, mammoth towering over the gallery. Artifacts include a number of old Bibles, clothing, photographs, and even some mechanical contraptions like a hog oiler, which was used in the late 1800s and early 1900s to provide penned hogs relief from insects and offer skin protection. You'd put in a hog pen and hogs would run up rub up against it, and get oil to combat like fleas and, and ticks, Van Ostel said. If hot maintenance isn't your thing, the exhibit will also feature a rifle from the Revolutionary War, a German ceremonial sword, and a Japanese Arisaka rifle from World War II. There will be yearbooks from the early 1900s and 1890 copy of William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. And a physician's little. There will be yearbooks from the early 1900s and an 1890 copy of William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar and a physician's liquor prescription book from the Hyde of Pro Prohibition. In 1928, in Oakland, Iowa, medical doctor prescribed one pint of whiskey for a man with chronic bronchitis. Together, all of the pieces that will be in the exhibit, Pace asked historical societies and museums throughout Potomac County to lend some of their collections. We sourced artifacts from the surrounding historical societies and borrowed them to kind of tell the treasures of those hometowns and also to drive people to those historical societies, Van Ostel said. Artifacts came from the Pioneer Trail Museum, Walnut Creek Historical Museum Society, Western Historic Trail Center, Rails. Artifacts came from the Pioneer Trail Museum, Walnut Creek Historical Society, Western Historic Trail Center, Rails West Railroad Museum, and Sweetvale of Avaca Museum, among others. Ben Ostel hopes that the exhibit will not only allow guests to see what life 
in the region was like hundreds of years ago, but also illustrate that history happens everywhere and you don't have to go all the way to New York City to visit the American Museum of Natural History to see it. So often, I think in our area, people think they have to travel to see a big city museum, Ben Austell said. I feel like there's so much history in our backyards, but it has to be cultivated. And unless people feel empowered to cultivate and preserve, you lose. I can't imagine how many artifacts probably have been lost because it was considered like, oh, this isn't an area for that, or this isn't the home for that. And so it takes a grassroots movement to preserve and cherish these treasures. Van Austell wants to make a history of Potomac County, a biennial exhibit to continue showcasing the area's history, but also to drive people to visit some of the smaller communities in the county. They could go eat in a restaurant to see the historical society, see the sites, Van Austell said. That's something we'll be definitely developing more of to just get a lifeline to these places. Your Home, A History of Potomac County opens with a reception at 6.30 p.m. Friday, March 3rd, which is free to attend, though space is limited. Following that, the exhibit will be open to visitors on Fridays from 6 to 9 p.m. and Saturdays from noon to 4 p.m. through May 6th. For more information, visit peaceartsiowa.org. Face of the day. Red the dog is looking to shepherd her way into our heart. Red is a four-year-old female healer and cattle dog mix who is currently available for adoption at Midlands Humane Society, 1020 Railroad Avenue. Shelter staff members say she is super sweet once she warms up and will make a great companion with an adopter that can help her build her confidence a bit. Wormsa Red is nervous to start but warms up to carrying people quickly. She may need space between her and other dogs or young kids as she gets acquainted to her new household. Red's adoption fee is $225, which includes a microchip, age-appropriate vaccines, and altering. In other shelter news, Midlands and Leadership Council Bluffs are teaming up to host Discs for Dogs, a disc golf fundraiser tournament to benefit the shelter at Iowa Western Community College on May 6th. The tournament begins at 9 a.m. and will take place at the Treasure Cove disc golf course on campus the fun and fun raising will continue the next weekend as midland's annual gala will take place at the mid america center on may 12th registration and other information for both events can be found on the midland's website more information about fostering volunteering and donation opportunities can be found at midland's humane society.org or by calling 712 Three nine six two two seven zero. Like their Facebook page to keep up with daily shelter news. The shelter can also be found at Midlands Humane on Twitter and Midlands Humane Society on Instagram. Governments target medical debt with COVID relief funds. Millions of Americans mired in medical debt 
face difficult financial decisions every day. Pay the debt or pay for rent, utilities, and groceries. Some may even skip necessary health care for fear of sinking deeper into debt. To address the problem and an increasing number of munis- municipal, county, and state governments are devising plans to spend federal coronavirus pandemic relief funds to eliminate residents' medical debt and ease those debt burdens. The city council in the Boston suburb of Somerville last month anonymously passed a resolution to spend 200000 of the city's $77 million in American Rescue Plan Act foundation funding that could clear as much as $4.3 million in medical debt, said Willie Burnley Jr., one of the city's counselors behind the effort. As many 5,000 of the city's 80,000 residents could benefit. Cook County, Illinois, which includes Chicago and Pittsburgh, New Orleans, and Toledo, Ohio, are among more than a dozen communities that have set into motion or are considering similar plans. Democratic Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont last week proposed spending $20 million in ARPA funds to eliminate as much as $2 billion in state residents' medical debts. Unlike credit card or loan debt, medical debt is not a choice, advocates said. Medical debt is something that people can't help, and it's not their fault, Burnley said. No one chooses to get hurt or to get sick. Somerville resident Virginia Faust has health insurance, but she still fell several thousand stars into debt in 2021 when a mental health emergency required a week-long hospital stay. The debt affected her credit and, in a cruel irony, put additional stress on her mental health. This would have a tangible effect on my life and a relieve a lot of stress, Fast 25 said of Burnley's plan. It would mean I would be more likely to go to a doctor and get regular checkups. In Toledo, it combined $1.6 million from the city and Lucas County will eliminate as much as $240 million in medical debt for as many as 41,000 residents, according to Ohio State Rep. Michael Grimm, who drove the effort when he served as a Toledo city councilor. It's such a great return on investment, she said. I really couldn't think of a better way to use dollars that were meant to aid in the economic recovery of our citizens. The cities and states are teaming up with RIP Medical Debt, a New York-based nonprofit that since 2014 has used donations to buy huge bundles of debt from hospitals and other health care providers at pennies on the dollars and pay it off. A single donated dollar erases an average of $100 of debt. More than 40% of American adults have medical debt and about two-thirds of personal bankruptcies and the nation cite medical debt as a leading cost, said Allison Sesso, president and CEO of the nonprofit. The money is coming from the federal government's $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act, which included $360 billion for local, state, territorial, and tribal government to provide economic relief. This is one of the most impactful and direct ways we can use this money and it would have been incredible and quantifiable benefits, Burnley said. 
Eligibility requirements can vary, but to be eligible in Somerville for the debt relief through RIP Medical Debt, individuals or family can have a household income of up to 40, 400% of the federal property. That's 111000 annually for a family of four, according to federal statistics, or have medical debts that exceed 5% of their annual income. There is no need to apply. RIP Medical Debt determines eligibility, and the beneficiaries get letter informing them that their debt has been acquired and can sealed. Not everyone will benefit. People whose debt continues to be held by four non by for-profit collection agencies may miss out. Unlike federal student loan debt relief, medical debt relief has more widespread and bipartisan support. According to a recent survey by Tolchin Research, more than 70% of Americans support medical debt, while only about half of Americans support student loan debt relief. The survey of 1,500 adults had a margin of error of plus or minus 2.5% points. Since its funding, RIP Medical Debt has raised enough money to eliminate more than 8.5 billions of debt for nearly 5.5 million people. But that's barely a dent in the total number of people facing tough money choices. A 2021 study that appeared in the Journal of the American Medical Association determined that Americans have $140 billion in unpaid health care bills at collection agencies alone, and that debt disproportionately affects the poor. Although it's a good cause, using ARPA funds to discharge medical debt does not address the underlying systematic problem, said Ray Kunder, an assistant professor at Harvard Business School and one of the study's co-authors. Medical debt is a byproduct of the patchwork way we pay for healthcare, he said. While relieving debt after they have gone through the provider writer collections process won't address the issue driving the accumulation of these unpaid bills in the first place. It may nevertheless help people who are struggling to pay back their bills, Clounder said. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Monday, February 20th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Patty Caldera from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. Donna L. Holly. Donna L. Holly, age 84, passed away February 16, 2023. Memorial service, Wednesday, 11 a.m. at St. John Lutheran Church, with a lunch immediately following. Memorials are suggested to St. John Lutheran's Church or Midlands Humane Society. U.S. casinos top $60 billion in 2022, their best year ever. Atlantic City, New Jersey, commercial casinos in the United States won more than $60 billion from gamblers in 2022, the best year in the industry's history. Figures released by the American Gaming Association, the gambling industry's national trade group, 
show that in-person gambling remains the bread and butter of the industry, accounting for more than 80% of its revenue. Online beating provided nearly a fifth of the industry's revenue. The figures do not include tribal casinos, which report their revenue separately, but David Foreman, a vice president with the association, estimated that tribal casinos could report an additional $41 billion in revenue later this year, putting total U.S. casino industry over the $100 billion mark. That would put the gambling revenue roughly equal with the amount of money raised from beer sales in the U.S., he said. Our industry significantly outpaced expectations in 2022, said Bill Mendler, the association's president and CEO. Simply put, American adults are choosing casino gaming for entertainment in record number, benefiting communities and taking market share from the predatory illegal marketplace. The $60.4 billion won by casinos last year was up nearly 14% over 2021 levels. That growth is almost the equivalent of adding another Las Vegas Strip to the U.S. market, Foreman said. The Las Vegas Strip and Atlantic City remained among the top gambling markets in the country in 2022, with the Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Chicago, and Mississippi Gulf Coast markets also performing well. The association ranked gambling markets according to their in-person winnings at table games, some machines, and at-the-counter sports betting, but excluded online sports betting and internet casino games. The top 10 are Las Vegas Strip, $8.2 billion, up to 17%, Atlantic City, $2.8 billion, up to 8.5%, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., $2.2 billion, up to 8.7%, the Chicago region, spanning parts of Illinois and Indiana, 2.1 million, up to 6.1%. The Mississippi Gulf Coast, 1.6 billion, down 0.5%. New York City, 1.5 billion, up 2.6%. Philadelphia, 1.4 billion, down 1.8%. Detroit, 1.3 billion, down 1.4%. The St. Louis market spanning parts of Missouri and Illinois is $1.1 billion, up 3.6%. And the Boulder Strip in Nevada, $966 million, virtually flat compared with last year. The association splits several statewide markets into smaller regional components, including Pennsylvania, Nevada, Louisiana, and Mississippi, diluting their overall ranking nationwide. 32 jurisdictions saw an increase in gambling revenue compared with 2021, with 29 states setting new annual records. This included the new Nebraska market, as well as four states that reported their first full year of revenue, Arizona, Connecticut, Virginia, and Wyoming. Mississippi, down 3.6%, and South Dakota, down 2.2%, saw their annual revenue decrease compared with 2021. Additionally, the sports betting only market in Washington, D.C. continued to lose ground to neighboring Maryland and Virginia. The association said 84 million Americans adults, or 34% of the adult population, visited a casino in the past year, including newly opened markets in Nebraska and Virginia. Table games revenue was up to 13.9%, while slot machines were up 5.1%. Sports betting continued to grow rapidly in 2022, setting new records for the total amount wagered, $93.2 billion.
and Sportsbook's revenue is $7.5 billion. This growth was helped in part of Kansas, which began retail and mobile sports wagering and by the laugh and by the launch of mobile the growth was helped in part by Kansas, which began retail and mobile sports wagering, and by the launch of mobile sports betting in Louisiana, Maryland, and New York. The association predicted that 40 states might legalize sports betting by the end of 2023, up from the 36 plus Washington, D.C. that have done it already. Online casino revenue grew by 35.2% to $5 billion. Six states currently offer internet gambling, New Jersey, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, West Virginia, and Delaware. Nevada only offers online poker. Miller said five additional states have introduced bills that would legalize internet gambling, Illinois, Indiana, Maryland, New Hampshire, and New York. Some teachers invite AI to class. Under the fluorescent lights of a fifth grade classroom in Lexington, Kentucky, Dunny Piercy instructed his 23 students to try and outwrite the robot that was churning out writing assignments. The robot was the new artificial intelligence tool, ChatGPT, which can generate everything from essays and haikus to term papers in seconds. The technology has panicked teachers and promoted school districts to block access to the site. But Piercy is embracing it as a teaching tool, saying his job is to prepare students for a world where knowledge of AI will be required. This is the future, said Piercy, who describes ChatGPT as just the latest technology in his 17 years of teaching that prompted concerns about the potential for cheating. The calculator, spell check, Google, Wikipedia, YouTube, now all his students have Chromebooks. As educators, we haven't figured out the best way to use artificial intelligence yet, he said, but it's coming, whether we want it to or not. One exercise pitted students against a machine in a lively interactive writing game. Piercy asked students to find the bot. Each student summarized a text about boxing champion Muhammad Ali. When each student summarized a text about boxing champion Muhammad Ali, then tried to figure out which was written by the chatbot. At the elementary school level, Piercy is less worried about cheating and plagiarism than high school teachers. His district blocks students from chat GPT but allows teacher access. Many educators around the country say districts need time to evaluate and figure out the chatbot but also acknowledge the futility of a band that tech savvy students can work around. To be perfectly honest, do I wish it could be uninvented? Yes. But it happened, said Steve Darlow, the technology trainer at Florida's Santa Rosa County District Schools, which blocked the application on school issue devices and networks. He sees an advent of AI platforms as both revolutionary and disruptive to education. He envisions teachers asking Chad GPT to make amazing lesson plans for a substitute or even for help grading papers. I know it's lofty talk, but this is a real game changer. You're going to have an advantage in life and business and education from using it. ChatGPT launched in November and rival companies are racing to release their own version of AI-powered chatbots. 
The topic of AI platforms and how schools should respond drew hundreds of educators at the Future of Education Technology Conference in New Orleans last month. The topic of AI platforms and how schools should respond drew hundreds of educators at the Future of Education Technology Conference in New Orleans last month, where Texas math teacher Heather Brantley gave an enthusiastic talk on the magic of writing with AI for all subjects. Brownlee says she was amazed at ChatGPT's ability to make her sixth grade math lesson more creative and applicable to everyday life. I'm using ChatGPT to enhance all my lessons, she said. The platform is blocked for students, but open to teachers at her school. White Oak Intermediate, take any lesson you're doing and say, give me a real world example and you'll get examples from today's, not 20 years ago when the textbooks were using were written. For a lesson about slope, the chatbot suggests the students build ramps out of cardboard and other items in a classroom, then measure the slope. For teaching about surface area, the chatbot noted the sixth graders would see how the concept applies, but real life, when wrapping gifts or building a cardboard box, Brantley said, she's urging districts to train staff to use the AI platforms to stimulate student creativity and problem-solving skills. We haven't... We have an opportunity to guide our students with the next big thing that will be part of their entire lives, she said. Let's not block it and shut them out. After a few rounds of Find the Bond, Piercy asked his class what skills it helped them hone. Hands shot up, how it properly summarized and correctly capitalized words and used commas. One student said, a lively discussion ensued on the importance of developing a writing voice and how some of the chatbot sentences lacked flair or sounded styled. Trevor James Medley, 11, felt that sentences by students have a little more feeling, more backbone, more flavor. Next, the class turned to PIAI writing. The students broke into groups and wrote down the characters of a short play with three scenes to unfold into a plot that included a problem that needs to get solved. Piercy fed details from their worksheets into the chat GPT side with instructions to set the scenes inside a fifth grade classroom and add a surprise ending. It generated scripts with the students edited, edited, rehearsed, and then performed. One was about a class computer that escapes, with students going on a hunt to find it. The play's creators giggled over unexpected plot twists that the chatbot introduced, including sending the students on a time travel adventure. First of all, I was impressed, said Olivia Lasky, 10, one of the protagonists. She liked how the chatbot came up with creative ideas, but she also liked how Piercy urged them to revise things they didn't like. It's helpful in the sense that it gives you a string point, she said. It's a good idea generator. Pastors say sermons written by ChatGPT will have no soul. Pastor says sermons written by ChatGPT will have no soul. New York, among sermon writers, there is fascination and unease over the fast-expanding abilities of artificial intelligence chatbots. For now, the evolving constituents among clergy is this. Yes, they can write a passively competent sermon, but no, they can't replicate the passion of actual preaching. It lacks a soul. I don't know how else to say it, said 
Herschel York, a pastor in Kentucky who also is dean of the School of Theology and a professor of Christian preaching at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Sermons are meant to be the core of worship service, and often our faith leaders' best weekly shot are grabbing their congregation's attention to impart theological and moral guidance. Lazy pastors might be tempted to use AI for this purpose, Yurik said, but not the great shepherds, the ones who love preaching, who love their people. Rabbi in New York, Joshua Franklin, recently told his congression at the Jewish Center of the Hamptons that he was going to deliver a plagiarized sermon dealing with such issues as trust, vulnerability, and forgiveness. Upon finishing, he asked the worshipers to guess who wrote it. When they appeared stumped, he revealed that the writer was Chad GPT, responding to his request to write a 1,000-word sermon related to that week's lesson from the Torah. Now you're clapping, I'm deathly afraid, Franklin said when several congregants applauded. I thought truck drivers were going to go along before the rabbi in terms of losing our positions to artificial intelligence. Chad GPT might be really great at sounding intelligent, but the question is, can it be empathetic? And that, not yet at least, it can't, at Franklin. He said, AI has yet to develop compassion and love and is unable to build community and relationships. Those are the things that bring us together, the rabbi concluded. Rachel Key, pastor of Living Table United Church of Christ, of Christ in Minneapolis, undertook an experience experiment similar to Franklin's. She posted a brief essay in her online pastoral notes in January addressing how to attend to one's mental health amid the stresses of the holiday season. It was pleasant, but somewhat bland, and at the end, Keith revealed that it was written by Chad GPT, not by herself. While the facts are correct, there's something deeper missing, she wrote. AI cannot understand community and inclusivity and how important these things are in creating church. Several congregation number members responded, It's not terrible, but yes, I agree. Rather generic and a little bit eerie, wrote Douglas Fedhart. I like what you write a lot more. It comes from an actually living being with a great brain and a compassionate beating heart. Todd Brewer, a New Testament scholar and managing editor of the Christ Christian Web Saint Mockingbird wrote in December about an experiment of his own, asking ChatGPT to write a, Christ, a Christmas sermon for him. He was specific, requesting a sermon based upon Luke's birth narrative with quotations from Karl Barth, Martin Luther, Uranus of Lyon, and Barack Obama. Brubel wrote that he was not prepared when ChatGPT responded with a creation that met his criteria and is better than several Christmas sermons I've heard over the years. The eye even seems to understand what makes the birth of Jesus genuinely good news, Brewer added. Yet the ChatGPT sermon lacks any human warmth, he wrote. The preaching of artificial intelligence can't convincingly sympathize with the human play. Surprise! IRS will be scrutinized tipped workers. 
Surprise! IRS will scrutinize tipped workers. With more funds from Congress, agency wants to collect more from service industry. It was barely six months ago that congressional Democrats voted to boost IRS funding by $80 billion over the next decade under the guise of beefing up tax enforcement and bringing more money out of billionaires and millionaires. Wage earners of less means were assured they had little to worry about from any army of new agents. These resources, IRS Commissioner Charles Rediger insisted in August, are absolutely not about increasing oddity scrutiny on small businesses or middle-income Americans. Yes, it would be dangerously naive to believe that financially for fortifying the tax agency wouldn't have repercussions beyond the dust hardly 1%. And a new IRS proposal proves just that. The agency recently began the process of establishing an updated tape reporting procedure for service industry employees. The program would replace three tip compliance agreements that have been in place with employers and workers since the early 1990s. Gaming employees who operate under a separate tip program would not be affected. The purpose of the reform is to capture more revenue from unreported tips. The plan, Yahoo reported, aims to leverage advancements in point-of-sale time and attendance systems and electronic payment settlement methods to improve tip reporting compliance. In other words, the agency seeks to more aggressively tap data from electronic sources to more accurately access TIP compliance. In 2018, the Treasury Department estimated that 30% of service industry employers with TIP reporting agreements failed to report $1.6 billion in TIPs during the 2016 tax year. Many existing TIP agreements, the IRS subsequently concluded, provided TIP examination protection to employees with a measurable form of TIP reporting compliance, which is not in the interest of sound tax administration. The new system agency of officials maintain will be more efficient because it removes the employee from the equation and puts the onus on employers to more accurately evaluate income. That's all well and good. Service industry workers have an obligation to fully report income, as do all other wage earners, including billionaires. The IRS isn't imposing any new obligations, and there's no indication yet that service workers will face an increase in audits. But the whole point of the new program is to make it easier for the tax agency to minimize the number of tips that go unreported and thus collect more federal revenue. As Reason Magazine has pointed out, the IRS has a long history of targeting lower-income taxpayers, particularly those claiming the earned from the, the earned income tax credit. The new tip compliance proposal highlights the folly of arguing the IRS won't use its multi-billion-dollar financial windfall to go after tax cheats in the middle and lower tax brackets. Anger over gun violence is leading to voter rebellion. And so many angry, mentally ill person decides to shoot random human beings for no particular reason. 
Though mass killings have become common, the one at Michigan State University was the 67th this year, and we're only in February. Something feels different this time. It's not the number of victims, three dead in this case. The 2017 attack in Las Vegas massacred 60 and wounded over 400. Nor was it the nature of the victims. These are young people with a future, but not elementary school kids, 20 of whom were mowed down in Newton, Connecticut, 19 in Uberdale, Texas. This one was this one has political ramifications. It occurred in Michigan, a Midwest state that last November re-elected Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer and turned control of both the state's Senate and House to Democrats. One must believe that right-wing threats of gun violence moved a lot of voters to change teams in Lansing. There was the unforgettable visual of creeps waving semi-automatics on the steps of the state's capital over one of the governor's COVID policies. Then there were the head cases of shooting off their guns in the woods as they plotted to kidnap Whitmer. Especially chilling about the outrage of Michigan State was the alert sent by campus security to run, hide, or fight. The horror grew more intense with news that some of the college students had already survived the terror of the 2021 Oxford High School shooting in which four students died. In some, there are 20-year-old kids who have sheltered in place for two separate mass school shootings. And Michigan State killings took place a day before the five-year anniversary of the Parkland, Florida massacre that left 17 students dead. As tearful commemorations were held, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was campaigning at the most gun-loving Republican, evidently vying to become the Republican candidate for president. He's pushing legalization to let Florida residents carry concealed firearms in public without a permit, never mind training. The Michigan State gunman was arrested in 2019 for carrying a concealed weapon without a permit and had to forfeit the gun. The sentence apparently doesn't want to inconvenience killers like him by requiring a permit. Florida gun deaths have risen nearly 19% from 2015 to 2020. In 2020, 13.7 Floridans out of every 100,000 died from gun violence. By contrast, the number of gun deaths per 1,000 was only 5.3 in New York. Hawaii posted the lowest and best number, 3.4. How many times have we heard that the vast majority of Americans, most Republicans included, want at least universal background checks for all purchases. They want red flag laws to remove guns from those deemed to be dangerous to themselves or others, and majorities want bans on certain weapons of war. Say what you want about former President Donald Trump. He showed a modicum of guts in entertaining some gun control measures after the Parkland tragedy. Sadly, he wimped out after the NRA bared a few teeth at him. We've been here before. Shocked calls for an even modest tightening of gun laws and Republicans killing almost all efforts to do so. No doubt letting 
mentioned 18 year olds obtain weapons more deadly than those used in the Vietnam War somehow fits into DeSantis' cracked culture war campaign. But it increasingly hard to see how he or any other politician is going to overcome growing public dismay at the crazy gun violence now stalking many views among parents, students, grocery shoppers, concerts, attendants, and church goers, as well as drug gangs. More and more Americans know an innocent who has been shaken or killed by criminal or mentally ill gunmen. Michigan may have been an early indicator of a voter rebellion. Why America's schools keep getting more political. In U.S. politics, domestic issues tend to fall into one of two categories, economic or cultural. But it's getting harder these days to decide where education belongs. That's because Democrats and Republicans are talking about the issues differently and their rhetorical dismaterially shows how each party has adopted its own view of class conflict. For most Democrats, education has always been largely about dollars and cents. The party's current policy proposal emphasizes increased government funding to improve public schools facilities and resources, expand pre-K programs, and increase college affordability. President Joe Biden's plan to forgive certain federal student loan debts and announced shortly before the 2022 midterms but now facing multiple legal challenges, represents a benefit directed toward a specific population, current students and younger graduates. That Democratic leaders view as an important constituency motivated by material self-interest. Republicans, in contrast, have become more likely to regard education as part of a larger cultural conflict. They describe public schools and universities as liberal, dominated environments that need to be prevented from forcing their ideological version, vision on U.S. society. Former President Donald Trump introduced an education reform proposal last month that includes cuts in federal funding for schools that teach critical race theory, gender ideology, or other inappropriate racial, sexual, or political content a certification program for teachers who embrace patriotic values and a plan to allow parents the right to elect the principal of their children's school. Other public schools have been taken over by the racial... A certification program for teachers who embrace patriotic values and a plan to allow parents the right to elect the principal of their children's school. Our public schools have been taken over by radical left maniacs, Trump says. Trump's recent focus on this issue seems like a response to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a potential rival for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination, who has made the state educational system a primary target in his war of wokeness. DeSantis has enacted a series of laws in Florida premised on his beliefs that the state's public schools and universities have become focused on the imposition of trendy left-wing ideologies, especially in topics such as race and gender. The party's ways of discussing education reflected a larger difference in how they perceive social relations in America. For Democrats, the class system, defined by inequality of wealth and government-funded education programs, are a way for the economically disadvantaged to climb the ladder of success. In his State of the Union address week, 
addressed last week, Biden vowed to make the educational system an affordable ticket to the middle class and proposed two years of tuition-free community college. Like many Democrats before him, Biden seeks the support of working-class voters by claiming his party's education platform will provide them with the opportunity for upward economic mobility. For Republicans, the importance class distinction is not between the economic haves and have-nots, but between those with more culture power and those with less. Republican leaders make their own populist appeals to blue-collar voters by targeting institutions led by well-educated, socially progressive professionals, increasing, including the educational system itself. In the radical left's America, our children are taught to hate one another on account of their race, but not to love one another of or our great country, argued Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders in her State of the Union response. Neither party's vision consistently prevails over the other. The growing salience of culture concerns have led white Americans without a college degree to support Republican candidates by two-to-one maintenance in recent elections. That staying in school will provide them with a greater economic return after they graduate. And politicians who propose cuts to education spending risk facing a popular backlash, even in conservative constituencies. In fact, despite their sharp criticism of public educators, both DeSantis and Huckabee Sanders have recently proposed increasing teacher salaries and other education fundings in their home states. The struggle over how to frame education policy will continue as, how, as long as voters see some truth in how both parties view the class divide in America. Council Bluffs will be well represented at state tournament. Three teams and 14 individuals to compete in Waterloo. At this week's state bowling tournament in Waterloo, three teams and 14 individuals will be representing Council Bluffs. For Justin Peckney, co-coach at St. Albert, sending both boys and girls teams to 1A State, the qualifiers show off bowling in Council Bluffs. Council Bluffs has got some really, really good bowlers, Penke said, and when you look at it, a lot of the good bowlers happen to be on the other side of the state for the past couple of years. This side of the state has done done really well, especially in Council Bluffs. And it's pretty cool to be a part of it with all the different schools here in town. While the boys' team are making the second straight appearance, the girls made history with their first state tournament berth, which Pickney said they have been building for for years. I think it's really special, too, that both programs qualified for state, both the boys and the girls, Saints bowler Lexi Narmi added, I think that's something that a lot of schools can't say that they get to send two teams up to state as one whole program. District champion Bailey Sacris making both individual and team is something special, especially as a freshman. Especially with it being my freshman year, I know this is something you don't see a lot around the state, Sacris said. Going in as a team, though, almost feels like a dream. Being able to go to a state with all of these girls is really exciting. We finally put ourselves on the map and we're looking to do more. For Narmi, in a sport where success can depend on any given day, the hard work paid off with an individual qualification. Georgie Bonet joined Narmi and Sikras as an individual. 
Both Seacrest and Narmi are approaching the state tournament to have fun and focus on bowling. From the team perspective, Penke said the girls will need to calm their nerves to hit their spares. It's gonna be the nerves. Hopefully, they'll get their nerves calmed down so those Baker games should do it. And then just going through and hitting their spares and just keeping a level head and trying to make it through the bracket. At State, anything can happen, and I expect some big things from them. Joining the three Saints, they're a trio of Falcons. Last year's 1A State champion Adam Denny, along with Jackson Wigginton and Cole Peckney. Denny admitted that he'll likely go with a similar nonchalant approach to last year after the disappointment of losing as the top-setted team. I didn't really have a plan last time because I was kind of devastated that our team lost. And so I was like, oh, this doesn't really matter because what I'm really looking forward to is the team state victory. Doesn't matter as much if I go back to back. Panky said the focus will be on hitting marks, avoiding splits, and picking up spares. While wigging 10, Pickney said the focus will be on hitting marks, avoiding splits, and picking up spares. While Wigington district champion last week said scoreboard watching is something they need to avoid, another main goal is to not scoreboard watching, Wigington said. We did a lot of that last year, and we got caught scoreboard watching. That's why we lost. That was the only reason why we lost. We were, better. We were the better team. With nothing guaranteed, Denny said the Falcons are focused on winning. The other team from Council Bluffs qualified for state. The Lewis Central girls make their second straight trip in 2A. Their main focus is on Spurs shooting. Spurs shooting is huge, Tynan's head coach Paul Renshaw said. It's huge at the high school level, huge at the college level. We just have to run our spares and we don't have to throw a lot of strikes. But if we get our spares, then we can compete with anybody. But spare shooting is definitely top of the list. The state qualifications also enforces that they are as good as they were last year. I think my dad kept telling us we have more potential, more talent than we did last year. Junior Feth Renshaw, also an individual qualifier. And says we went to state, we should be able to do it again. I don't think we were really believed that before. But now we do. Senior Alicia Odin was the individual district champion with a three-game score of 696. And freshman Kay Reed joins the two veterans as the other Titan girls' individual qualifier. Reed says she will need to get over the nerves in her first state appearance. Individually going in as a freshman my first year making it to state is just about getting over the nerves of being there and just doing good and trying to get a good outcome for me. And then as a team... If we don't come out on top, just ending it as a family and all together is something good for all of us, especially for our seniors. Reed added that another important focus along with spare shooting is the mental side of the game. More than spare shooting, it's our mental game because everyone on the team gets in their head. And if we're not doing good, we've gotten better as the season's gone on. But I think the mental game is more important than spare shooting at this point because throughout the season, we've all gotten better at picking up our spares. The final Titan individual qualifier is Caleb Hodwalker, qualified for the boys 2A tournament, who is hoping to use state as a learning experience. It shows me how much 
progression I've made over the last two years. I mean, as a sophomore, it is pretty big accomplishment, but I feel like I'm going to use it as a, I guess, next couple of years and hopefully pushing to win it next year, next couple of years or so. I'm thinking something like that this year. Yeah, I just want to experience. I'm just glad to be out there. Glad I did good at districts. Rounding out the individual qualifiers from Castle Bluffs were Kendall Bell and Thomas Jefferson and the trio of Bennett Olsen, Eric McCoy, and Joshua Shambold from Abraham Lincoln. I think for me, it just felt like all the right strategies came together. I didn't get to in my head, Bell said. I didn't get upset. I was focused on the next shot, and when it worked, I was glad to make sure that I was able to keep going. Bell said, Success at the state tournament is measured differently by each individual bowler, but he is aiming to get into the top eight in bracket play. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Nonparal for Monday, February 20th. The Nonparal can be heard each weekday at 3 p.m. Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about today's broadcast or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. I'm Patty Caldera from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for listening.